We're going to talk this morning about monasticism. Um, hopefully, you will recall from last week uh, that we discussed the early, some of the early church fathers. And um, we spent a particular amount of time on Augustine, or Augustine, depending how you want to uh, pronounce it, and some of the others talked about the Roman Empire. And we're going to move in now as we progress through history. Uh, we're going to move into monasticism, um, which we, and I will, uh, which we have almost zero experience with in our Protestant, Presbyterian, Reformed heritage. Some of you who have come from, uh, so Rachel's not here, I don't know if anyone else has a background, uh, Roman Catholic background will have an association with monasticism that we don't. So from that sense, we're kind of on the outside looking in uh, to think about the monastics or the monks. How did that originate? Uh, we'll go through it this way. Um, context of, uh, of the beginnings, a little bit of the evolution of the monastic movement. Think about the function of the monastics or the monks, and then um, their legacy for us today. So do we appreciate monasticism? Do we curse it and say it's a curse on the church? What, how did it arise? What is it? How did it arise? How has it flown, flown, flowed? How has it flowed through time, etc.? So we'll go that route this morning. We'll spend there. 40, uh, 40 minutes or so on it, and uh, consider it. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for our worship this morning. Uh, would you focus our minds to give thought to this movement in church history that is a part of our heritage, whether we are associated with it closely or not, we're all influenced by it. So, Father, help us to think on it and give it consideration now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, uh, so John has asked the question, uh, "What is it?" Well, let's let's see if we can define it somewhat in the in the context of uh, of its beginnings to describe what monasticism is. So, as we have discussed uh, the history of Rome and its um, relationship to Christianity, we've had a couple of key dates come up. One. First of all, a key emperor was Constantine. You know, we had a period of time where Christians are persecuted, and particularly under the emperor Diocletian, this would be about 270 or so A.D. There's severe persecution, systematic across the land. Martyrs, we had a class of talk briefly about the, the martyrs, etc. And then Constantine comes along in... Uh, He's, uh, he's trying to, he's waging war, sort of a civil war in Rome, and he's waging war on a portion of the empire, and he comes to the battle of, how do you say it, Malvian? Mal Is that the way you say it? Awesome. He comes to a battle of Malvian Bridge, prays to the Christian God, wins the battle, and suddenly he's all about Christianity. This is the emperor. 
And he issues the, the Edict of Milan, uh, which was toleration of Christians. And then suddenly Christianity is the thing. I mean, it, it does not suddenly, but over time Christianity becomes the thing. If you want to advance in society, let's think about it. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not condemning this in any way, but it, it's a a feature of small-town southern life that I grew up in. If you wanted to advance in that small town, the chances of you advancing were exceedingly much higher if you were in the right faith group, whether you had the faith or not. Have you, have, have you, would you agree? So we had, a, we had a church, I was... My conversion is in that church. I love my church. It's gone off the rails now. It was the United Methodist Church. But nonetheless, it was a mixture of faith and advancers. Not that they were in there maliciously trying to advance themselves. It was just kind of the thing to do if you're going to advance in the community. You kind of associated in these circles. Can you take that and multiply it by exponentially and apply it to? Well, this was what was happening in Rome when Constantine converted, and it becomes the faith of the day. And you had all kinds of people coming into the church, some with faith. Some with not, uh, with other motives. Whether they were trying to make the point, whether they were conscious motives or not, it was just the flow of things. So that this is happening in Rome, and there's a controversy, by the way, when this happens because it's called the Donatist controversy. If I'm saying that uh, word right. Do I have it up there? The, yeah, the Donatus controversy and the purity of the church. And it was under this bishop, Donatus Magnus, in which when Christianity becomes the thing uh, and people of all stripes are kind of coming in, uh, there's the thought that, wait a minute, some of these people coming back to church now are the ones that handed us over to the Romans when we were being persecuted. Some of these people coming back to church renounced their faith to avoid punishments back in the day when we were being persecuted. Uh, some of these ministers in the church serving the sacraments have done this. And their sacraments, when they serve, those sacraments aren't valid because those people were compromisers. And this is the controversy. Should they be allowed back in? Once they come back in, should they be treated like everybody else, etc.? So, and by the way, I have to put all my disclaimer. Every time I put a disclaimer on it, I'm exceedingly humbled coming to these topics because this is a gross oversimplification of what occurred. Nonetheless, it's generally the path, the way it occurred. So, the controversy was there, and Augustine, or Augustine, if you please, uh, argued for the, uh, the acceptance of those who uh, this bishop would have called the compromisers, welcomed them back in, 
provide them mercy and accept them, which is, which is what occurred. Now, some reacted to this flood, not to the Donatist controversy, but this, this increasingly um, diluted, uh, less persecuted church environment by wanting to seek a more devout life. In other words, they viewed the church as being, um, well, we use the word diluted somewhat, not as strong as it once was. So in order to devote themselves to Jesus and the uh, Christian life, uh, they withdrew to pursue devotion kind of in a solitary way. And so we'll talk about one of the first. He's viewed as the quote-unquote father of monasticism, Anthony in Egypt. Uh, Anthony uh, was born in Egypt to uh, very wealthy parents. Let's see. I had, I had one, yes. Yes. I'm coming, I'm coming, you just got to sit there and be patient, because I'm coming to all of that. John is a, he's a bottom line guy, he's a get to the point, and tell it to me. Okay, I'm going to do all that, but I have to, my path is around the, around the way, okay? Because, because it's all connected. You cannot point to this without pointing to that, without point. It's a holistic environment in which this thing occurs. So we have the context, we have the church, and we have a man born to wealthy parents down in Egypt who is somewhat associated around some Christian circles, and he hears the story of the rich young ruler, sell all you have, give it away to the poor, come follow me, and Anthony does it. He's a rich kid. He's a silver spoon child. He gets rid of all his wealth, and he retreats to the desert of Egypt as a hermit. And he is, quote, unquote, the first monk. And he becomes famous, so famous that Augustine, remember we talked about writing in the Confessions, his Confessions, one of his two great works. He had many, number of works, City of God and his Confessions, which is his sort of his spiritual autobiography. And there's... That's not the quote. Go back one. Yeah. That's in the, out of the Confessions. It's chopped off at the top. I heard the life led by your servant. He's praying to God. This is his. I heard the life led by your servant, St. Anthony of Egypt, and I was moved by his going to the desert, for the man was famous, and the name of Anthony had come to my ears on many occasions, accompanied by various marvels. He'd given up a large fortune, which he had inherited from his parents, and he possessed and had it distributed to the poor, and he retired to the desert out of love for you. I was told that he endured great hardship, da 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 So this influenced Augustine. Anthony was a famous person. He was a hermit in the desert. And he, all the people sort of, uh, all the people, lot, many, many people came to know him by reputation or personally. He, in fact, he... They sort of gathered a little community around him out in the desert. His purpose was to pray 
and to live a life of privation without owning any property and devote and dedicate himself to, to God in this manner. Not a mystic. Uh, he wouldn't fall into that category. That's a great question. Uh, I don't think he would fall into the category of a mystic. Uh, he would, we would call him an aesthetic uh, if I, uh, in the sense that he's depriving himself of the comforts of life. So this was a way, this, this was Anthony. Now, in, this is all in the desert. These are the desert, desert fathers in Egypt. Now, as a follow-up to Anthony, now you can go. Here he is. Uh, there's some, some points of his, uh, uh, of his life. And um, um, uh, this is Anthony in the desert of Egypt. The a second one, and we don't have a slide for this one, uh, that follows Anthony is, um, is a man named uh, Paconius. Paconius comes to know Anthony, the desert, who's become famous by reputation. It's almost like, it's, it's how do you relate to this in the ancient world. It's just like, um, so have y'all been, any of y'all on Twitter following the, the revival at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky? So it's like, it, it's sort of like that you hear about. So I'm hearing about some spiritual thing, spiritual man over there, and it comes to people's attention. And one of, the, one of these people's is, uh, persons is... Uh, uh, Paconius. Now, Paconius was uh, uh, his time frame is uh, he's born around the year 300, and on after he gets up into his mid 20s, he's recruited by the Roman army. He's he's in, uh, conscripted, drafted, and at this point, nobody really wants to be in the Roman army. They're having to conscript, gather people up like that. And it was, a, it was a hard life. And he's down in Egypt too, by the way. Uh, he gets conscripted and sent off to boot camp. And because life was hard in the Roman army, uh, the Christians had mercy on these Roman soldiers and would feed them, take them food, give them comfort, give them aid wherever they were stationed. And Paconius, this had a mighty impression on Paconius. And he vowed to investigate Christianity further. And he did. And he comes to know how St. Anthony lives in these desert, desert hermits. And then Paconius uh, becomes a person who organizes these people out in the desert into a community. And this sort of becomes the first uh, community of monks. Now, in answer to uh, a closer answer to John's question will be on the next slide, I think. Yes, and you can't read it. I apologize. I was trying to make it artistic and put a monk house on the side of the mountain there. And that is, that is a monk house. But you'll see on the right hand side the life of the monk was solitude. They withdrew. They lived as hermits up in a little monk house like you see on the side of that mountain. They fasted. Uh, there was prayer. Uh, there were all those things on the right. Manual labor. 
voluntary hardships, and also hospitality because people from the towns would go out to visit these folks to be taught. So they would welcome them in and teach about uh, Christ and so on. So, yeah. Uh, so if, if you're a monk out in the wilderness in Egypt, one of the desert fathers, and I have some troubles, and I, I want to go see what the, what the holy man has to say about it. And the holy man receives uh, that, uh, that person. So you will see there on the left-hand side of the screen uh, four terms. You will see hermits. These first people were hermits except Paconius begins to organize the monks into a community, and, uh, and Paconius would be uh, considered that, uh, uh, that second term, and I don't know how, really how to pronounce the terms, Coanobites, they were in community. Uh, Sarabites, were, uh, they were less disciplined, and then on down to the fourth kind was, um, I won't even attempt to pronounce it, it's uh, Jedi's. Yeah, there you go. They were wandering. They were just they just wandered around, and they were kind of looked down upon. Now, so let's advance this. Uh, in the interest of time, there was uh, there was a bishop. Uh, oh, we got plenty of time. There was a, a a bishop around this time, and we don't have a slide on this. His name, by the way, the Roman Empire now is. Uh, split into two pieces. There's the eastern group that's based in Constantinople, and there's a western group that's based, or the western half is based, capital in Rome. And they're two different cultural environments. The eastern group, the eastern group, uh, is is sort of peaceful. There's cultural continuity. The barbarians aren't at the gates. You remember in 406, Rome is sacked. And it starts a long period of trouble and decline for, for the western side of the empire. So it's trouble. And culturally, culture, culture, politically and culturally, there is lots of upheaval and change. Well, there's a bishop over on the eastern side of the kingdom who takes note of the, his name is Basil, Basil takes note of the monastics, the, the monks, uh, the hermits, and he seeks to uh, regularize, or he sees advantage, because uh, he, he sees advantage in the devotion of these communities, and they can be used to care for the poor, and they need to be regularized and organized, and he becomes a promoter of these monastics. Are you comfortable with the term I'm using now? The monastics are those who observe monasticism as monks. Does that work? They're monks. They're monks. A bunch. The system is monasticism. It is a way of it is a way of living life under the uh, Christianity of Christian. Right now, yes, yes. 
So we're not going through the evolution of the development of Roman Catholicism, but it begins to really emerge around this time, particularly around the upheaval in the Western Empire, because, yes. Oh, yeah, they cite a lot of scripture. John the Baptist lived as a hermit in the wilderness and ate wild honey and locusts. He was an eccentric, ascetic guy. Absolutely. Uh, And a lot of things will change over time, but, uh, oh, yes, they did. And and, uh, they were widely admired for their devotion. And uh, even Christ, here we got, here we got, Anthony saying, sell all you have, give it away to the poor, come follow me. Well, he did exactly that. Um, So, yes, um, uh, they didn't just dream it up out of thin air. There's no doubt in my mind these people were genuinely seeking to follow Jesus, and this is the way it expressed itself. So now we got a little sense of that. Go to just this. We don't even have to think about that, but that's just something I saw on the internet of how all these people begin to be connected. It's a community of these folks, and there's an infrastructure of them, and then over time it organizes into uh, into a thing. So so Basil uh, begins to um, promote the 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 monastic way of life, and they begin to write rules on how we should live. So this, just like any other uh, uh, movement, starts as an informal kind of thing and begins to regularize and gets institutionalized over time. Uh, that happens with the uh, with the uh, with the monks here. All right, so let's let's go on past that one. Uh, and again, I'm sorry to uh, my slide is probably not as clear as I. No, it's not. Uh, the Western Empire, the Western Empire is in upheaval. The Western side of Rome is in upheaval. There is growing decadence in political corruption. Now you think you look back on Rome, you think, well, it was all corrupt. Well, there was a system in Rome. There was a Pax Romana, and we think of you know Romans reclining at the table and gorging themselves and constantly. It wasn't always that way. They had, that we, didn't, we wouldn't uh, agree with their moral system, but they had a system that created stability and it was all in upheaval now. Politically, everybody became, everybody. Political corruption was rampant. So beginning with the, beginning with when Rome is, sacked in that time frame, 400, on up into the latter 400s. It's just churning. And the anchor of the society, we could, I don't think we can read that, let me, let me just, widespread decadence and corruption, widespread political corruption, economic instability, and moral decay from a Roman point of view, moral decay. Even the Romans think, wow, we're really uh, decaying. Many people, especially those in the upper classes, they lived extravagantly. There was a wealth gap. There was a complete um, uh, reje- or, uh, 
disregard of those that were poor uh, in, the si- in society. They were abused in ways that they hadn't been in the past. Um, and there was a general sense of uh, spiritual, um, pagan or not, lack of spiritual coherence in society. Well, the anchor in the midst of the turmoil, you know, remember, Augustine has written the city of God. Um, The pagans are saying we need to restore the old pagan system because these Christians are ruining us. Uh, It's just, okay. So the church, we don't have the map up there, the first map, I didn't point it out, but the church in its various places across the empire on the west side becomes the rock of society. And in, it's the only place where there is order and you can find refuge. And there is a system, a kind of a consistent system of governance and we're not tossed to and fro wildly. And they are caring for poor people. And there is a sense of moral order in it. This is the church. At the base of that are communities of what? Monks. So the monks become sort of a, an anchoring, stabilizing force, these monasteries. And now by this time, there has been a monastic, a monk, um, who has come on the scene in his name, can you know it, name his name? Rod Dreyer just wrote a book using his name. St. Benedict. He wrote a book called The Benedict Option. Now Benedict comes along and becomes a huge influence on the monastic movement. Do I have Benedict on the slide? Yeah, in the course of time. He's born in Italy around 480. Remember, we're up in the 480s here now. Roman, Roman the society is gone. The, 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 the vandals are at the gates. They're tearing stuff down. They're burning it down, and they're coming in from all sides. Benedict, uh, part of the church, born in Italy, to cut to the bottom line, sets up a system of um, monastic communities, communities of monks, and creates the rule of St. Benedict. And it is a rule of living. Chastity, poverty, prayer, and obedience. Again, grossly oversimplifying. But he writes a rule, and it's transferable, and it becomes the dominant way. Of, so you got an orderly society. You have a group of people that are providing stability in the empire, and um, they care for the poor. They're giving alms to the poor. They're the only uh, relief uh, in those situations. And this is uh, in St. Benedict, writing the rule. So this, the next slide there, uh, Heath, will just give you a summary. Hopefully you can read it a little bit. Obedience, uh, 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 Stability, you're to commit to a monk, monast- a monk community monastery for life. Uh, and then humility, prayer, manual labor to support yourself. These are the monks. So 
Let us then take this background and then fast forward, I think, yes, to sort of the medieval time. So what I'm hoping to just convey the sense of how the monastic movement sort of served a, a leavening force uh, in the society of that time. And that's why they grew. Uh, that's why more communities came online. It was the only, not the only, but it was a key point of refuge uh, if you were a monk or if you weren't a monk. Because if you lived in a little town that had a monastery and you were poor, you were all about those monks. Uh, or if you needed spiritual guidance, you were all about the, do you see kind of the force at play? Yes, okay, so then in our gross oversimplification of this scenario, we move along through time till we get to the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. When as the Roman Empire has gone away and things break down into more or less chaos, uh, the monastic communities are the ones who create schools. They preserve all the written not all of it, but all the key works of literature over time. You know, a monk, uh, a monastery was structured with an abbot who was the head guy. By the way, I'm, I'm not mentioning the ladies, but we could, you know, there were nunneries too. So there were communities of nuns. Uh, but the second most important role oftentimes in the monastery was the scribe because they poured over preservation of, uh, preservation of things. So I put this slide up there. I mean, you obviously can Google this and see all this stuff. Um, but just kind of giving you a little sense of the, the monastery there as it evolved into. So we've gone, from, we've gone from living in a cave in desert Egypt to sort of a highly evolved society. Uh, or highly evolved communities of people structured and working and doing very positive things for the, uh, for the society at large. On the right there, you'll see a map with a lot of dots. And that's sort of the medieval, when, I, when I'm saying medieval time period, let's just call it 1200. You'll see, the, you'll see all the monasteries. Uh, in many of your travels, Paul's been everywhere. So you've been to the monastery. Who else? Sean's been everywhere. He's been to the monasteries. Uh, y'all, will, y'all will have seen these places. Now, no, it's very, it's very much Catholic now. And, and here, here's where we're so as, as the church evolves into its Roman Catholic form in 400, 500, 600, 700 A.D., this is all about Roman Catholicism now. To the point that we can, uh, oh, that last slide, I really botched it. Can you take that picture off that guy? I so messed that up. Golly, Pete. So let's, let's talk about, that's a shame. Yes.
No, no. Well, well, we'll talk about that momentarily. And based on my box slide here, I'll, I'll do my best. I don't have my prompts. Uh, so on the, on the positive side, so let's, let's say a ledger, call it a ledger. On the positive side, I've already enumerated many of the things. They started schools, they care for the poor, they preserved writings, they uh, sort of embodied the stability in society, and this is all in the Western Europe sphere. Now let's go on the other side of the ledger. So John Calvin had no uh, regard for the Latter-day monks in the time of the Reformation. So we get up in the 13, 14, 1500 as we build up to the Reformation. Monasticism, uh, his writings, in fact I pulled that up um, a few minutes ago, his writings will give regard to the early monks in the desert that it was a purer form of heartfelt devotion that played itself out. The latter monks became exceedingly corrupt, if not in their own personal morals, which was often the case, in the theology that was portrayed. In that, they came to be viewed as and y'all, and you can correct me if I go down the wrong path, but is my understanding if they came to be viewed as storehouses of spiritual merit. So what I lack as an individual living in town here in my mundane everyday life with all of my problems, they've got excess reserves of merit, and I can go ask them to apply some of their excess merit to me, to help me is my intercessor. Does it make sense? Because they lived the holy life. Their life was holy, mine's not. So in order to be really right with God, you've got to go do all this stuff. You've got to get up and do your prayer seven times a day, and you've got to fast, and you've got to do your manual labor. and you got Remember Martin Luther. He's a monk. He starts out as a monk. And he, yes, uh, yeah. when he goes to Rome in his monk devotion, his pilgrimage to Rome, he bloodied, the story is, he bloodies his knees walking up the certain staircase on his knees in penance and humility, not out of anything in his heart, but just to flog his body to endure pain so that he can be more right with God. So this is the way the, the monasticism develops into a works righteousness for which Calvin uh, and the other for, uh, reformers had no regard. He writes this. Let's see if I can get it. God prefers devoted... Let's see. That's not it. The facts themselves tell us that all those who enter the monastic community break with the church. So he begins to criticize the isolation of the monk because it was not in the body of the believer. They separated themselves off and they performed their own sacrament and they did their own thing and this was, uh, this was a wrong thing to do. Why? Do they not separate themselves from the lawful society of believers in adopting a peculiar ministry and a private administration of sacraments? 
If this is not to break with the communion of the church, what is it? So he saw the monks as schismatics, essentially, which he himself was accused of being a schismatic. It's in your own household. <laughs> your own house is divided. So this was a... a con- now, that's the, the theological point, is this works righteousness. And then what we believe in the priesthood of all believers well, these holy monks are supposed to be more holy than the, all the other. So there's not, you know, there's, there's this, this idea of merit and spiritual reserve, et cetera, et cetera. Coupled with uh, those monks, and in every monastery operating right now, bring, on, bring in their sinful hearts into that community. And they struggle with the same temptations Prides, all the other sins. And when you get them in isolation, and in many cases, the monasteries develop really corrupt personal morals. Sexually, drunkenness, just all kinds of stuff. Pride, anger. <laughs> so this, this, this serves as a stepping off point for the reformers to say no. Calvin says, maybe the early, early aesthetics in Egypt, devotion, yes, but this, this thing we're in now, uh-uh. And so, no monasteries. Now, the question was, the question was um, monks in our day. So I personally don't know any monks. I did know a nun. Her name was Sister Marianne Guthrie. And she worked with the Catholics here in town. And she was one devoted woman. She cared for the poor in DeSoto County like we never thought about caring for the poor. I don't know if she did it out of the right motivations of her heart or not, but I know that she did it. Let me tell you this. When I was a young man, um, and I was once, uh, my first job out of college, I worked, with North Delta Planning and Development District in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And one of our first, you can go back and watch this, it's on YouTube on 60 Minutes now. One of our first assignments was related, my personal first assignment was related to Sugar Ditch Alley in Tunica, Mississippi. Some of the older heads might remember the controversy. Uh, they They got a downtown redevelopment grant. They put the downtown in beautiful working order, and 100 feet behind downtown was Sugar Ditch. Sugar Ditch was where all the ramshackle shacks were, and they dumped their sewage out in the ditch, and they called it the Sugar Ditch. Well, they had a big celebration for the downtown redevelopment. It was a beautiful job. Invited all these people into town. And one of the community activists said, hey, let me show you what's 100 feet behind this stuff. And so they went over there and it blew up. So it ultimately went to 60 Minutes. And Jesse Jackson came down and we had a congressional hearing in the Tunica County Courthouse and it was, it was a big deal. Uh, so I was in the middle of that and I was tasked with going and counting the people on Sugar Ditch, how many people were there, how many houses, and what were their incomes. And so that's what we did. And the only folks, Karen, I shouldn't say that, the only observable folks 
caring for those people on Sugar Ditch Alley were Catholic nuns. That's what they did. That's what Sister Marianne Guthrie did. So I guess I'm saying that I started off by saying I don't know any monks. I don't. I didn't know Sister Marianne Guthrie. I didn't know something of how they operated and how they did things. But yes, uh, so, so monasticism is in severe decline. I didn't get any statistics, but it's rapidly declining. They're, the Catholic Church closes those communities every day or every week, probably every month. Um, <clears throat> there are Episcopal monks. Uh, there are Eastern Orthodox monks. And if you Google enough, you'll see people in Protestant circles playing with intentional communities, and they won't be like St. Benedict monk, but, you know, these intentional kinds of monastic-like settings separating themselves off. So I guess I would, would close it with uh, saying this. Um, our Reformation heritage does not advocate monasticism because of some of the things I've just cited, the priesthood of all believers. And somebody wrote, have any of y'all read that book or have a litur liturgy of the ordinary? Some, I think Carol might have it. Our ordinary lives in this community are as um, meaningful as any monk's life withdrawn into a monastery. God is all places. He cares for all his creatures. And our life as a farmer or an art maker or an, oh, two artists on the same row. Um, bankers, we believe that God's holiness and vocation plays out in wherever we are. And we believe in the priesthood of all believers. And there, no, there is no hierarchy in God's kingdom of more spiritual or less spiritual based on your practice, what you do. We don't believe in a works righteousness. So in this way, we would not commend monasticism and we would call it misguided. Having said that, hopefully we convey some God in a common grace way, has used this thing called monasticism to, at some periods of time, preserve the church and preserve the gospel. So it's, a, it's not a clear kind of way to slice the, the loaf, yes. That's a that's a not they they would so the Amish would would follow the would be following the Bible verse wherever it is come ye out and be ye separate and separate themselves from the corrupt world and form their community and in that sense yes it is a monastic like community separated and they, and they have that that's a good somewhat of a good analogy yes. Some were to engage, yeah, so Basil's encouraging them to engage. Others are, uh, 
it's sort of like, uh, so my advice in running was I needed to start running slower in order to run faster. So to disengage in order to be more engaged. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so I, I guess I, I caution against a kind of a, I've often heard in our circles a reaction that it's all bad. It's not that simple. It's not as simple to say, ever, to say, to say it like that. Yes. Well, in this in this in this monasticism, you you got to be chaste. You can't uh, men are celibate. And the same case for women. Yeah, 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 yeah. So one one way of denying yourself uh, was to embrace celibacy. That was a practice. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Where is that? What town? Okay, yeah. I think there's uh, one also... And any of y'all see EWTN occasionally, the Catholic Channel, Eternal Word Network, started by the funny little nun. I forgot her name. Um, I think they have a monastery in Birmingham. It's based in Birmingham. Those are the closest ones. I'm, and then you mentioned that one. Huh. Exactly. Yes. No, and I'm don't I don't intend to. Uh, uh, thank you for for pointing that out. I, I'm I'm trying to say that that theologically underneath that we would have we would not be commending that. But as you just stated, that there's more to the story than that, and there are people who have. Uh, been within that context and devoted themselves in that way, um, in profound ways, and that needs to be recognized. And the service that's been rendered to society in many ways over the ages 
uh, is, is profound as well. Is that, am I making them up? Is everybody okay with what we're saying? All right. Any other questions or comments? Well, that's just a snippet. And that's from a guy who has limited experience interacting with, with monasteries. So, so if Sean will allow me, I'll give a five-minute snippet on that next Sunday. Just, just a five-minute snippet on it. It, it emerges, the, the, it, the official structure emerges out of the chaos that we're talking about here and the ascendancy of the Roman bishop as head of all comes out of it. We'll do a five-minute snippet next week.